What is up, ambitious listeners? So joining me in today's episode is Arielle Gold. She's the co-director of Code Pink, which is a phenomenal organization. She's a political activist, so this is something that's fairly out of my comfort zone. And Arielle and I sat down just a few days away from the general election to talk about everything United States politics. We talked about her career, her legacy, and all that, but we also talked about some of the most pressing issues in today's society and our country as a whole, and how can we make a change. So we talked about all of this with Arielle. It was a phenomenal conversation, and I'm really, really excited for you guys to listen to it after a quick word from our presenting sponsor, Anchor. Yo, what is up? Welcome to Ambitious. My name is Dylan Price. Today's guest is the national co-director of Code Pink, which is a woman-led grassroots organization working to end United States wars and militarism. They support peace and human rights initiatives and redirecting our tax dollars into healthcare, education, green jobs, and other life-affirming programs. Arielle herself is a United States Middle East foreign policy expert. She has a bachelor's degree from Cornell University and is well-regarded within political circles and is a renowned political activist. Arielle, thank you so much for coming on. It is a pleasure to talk to you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. So starting with Code Pink, how did you get involved? Well, I followed Code Pink when when they first formed at the start of the Iraq War. But at that time, I had uh, two toddlers. And so uh, uh, getting involved in direct action myself was not a... Uh, possibility at the moment, but I do have a vintage code pink shirt from back in the day that I had picked up at a protest while pushing a double stroller with my two kids in it. Um, As my kids got older and I had more freedom, um, the 2014 uh, vicious assault on Gaza had taken place, killing over 550 children. And um, I, I saw Code Pink advertising that they were doing a big protest um, outside of APAC that year. The, the 2014 war in Gaza was in the summer, and so the APAC conference was um, that the following spring. And I saw Code Pink said that uh, we're looking for people to do direct action. And I um, contacted them and said I'd like to come down to Washington, D.C. and be a part of this. And um, I blockaded the doors of the APAC conference with a few other people. We got right in the doorway and um, ended up being hauled off to jail. And that was the first time that I met Medea Benjamin in person, and I was so thrilled. And about a year later, I had finished graduate school, and I was in a, a transition looking for a new position. And Code Pink was looking to, uh, they were leading a delegation to Palestine, and they, they were looking for somebody to help plan and, and lead that delegation. And um, I said, I would love to do this. And it was supposed to just be a temporary thing. That, this was 2015, and I have been with them ever since. And, we have this, this funny story because I said to um, I said to them, "Shall I send my my resume over?" And Medea's response was, "We got your resume while you were in front of the doors of APAC getting hauled off to jail." <laughs> really thrilled to have you. <laughs> so you are obviously not afraid to stand up for what you believe in, and that is apparent in all of your activism efforts. And one of the biggest and one of the more well-renowned, I think, for what you've done is um, your activism in regards to Israel. Can you explain that, and can you explain the ban? Sure. Well, I'll go back to saying that um, I'm a Jewish mother, and I raised my children in American Jewish uh, community, Jewish summer camp, uh, religious school. We belong to uh, our local URJ Reform Synagogue, and that's in sharp, uh, you know, sometimes the, the, what, my children can be taught in their um, Hebrew schools and, and in summer camp is in sharp contrast to my belief in um, a just uh, solution to this endless occupation and system of apartheid. And so um, I took my children in between their bar and bat mitzvahs. When my son was 14 and my daughter was 12. We spent uh, three and a half weeks uh, traveling through the West Bank, staying with Palestinian families, because I wanted to, them to see, um, as, as young Jews, uh, the situation on the ground with their own eyes. 
Um, and uh, along with taking them that time, I used to spend one to two months a year in the West Bank, usually living in the um, flashpoint city of Hebron, which is really uh, the worst point for the occupation. Well, I'd say Hebron and Jerusalem um, in the West Bank and all, all the facets of the occupation are right there in Hebron. Over 20 checkpoints inside the city, just, you know, a blatant apartheid. Uh, literally two separate pathways where um, Jews walk on one side and Muslims walk on the other. Uh, so I used to, I used to go there once or twice a year for about a month at a time and uh, live there with, in, a, in an activist house with Palestinian activists. And, you know, some things happened while we were there, <laughs> while I was there. So uh, at one point, um, I was there and got a, violently assaulted by a settler by the name of Anat Cohen. I was waiting to take the bus into Jerusalem, and she came over to me and started kicking and punching me and um, trying to scratch at me. And I was, uh, I, I filmed the whole thing was all I did. I, I filmed the thing, and what also got filmed was me yelling at the soldiers who were maybe five feet away from me saying, you know, what is wrong with you? Why aren't you intervening and stopping this and uh, saying to them that they were they're violating Jewish values? Well, Anat Cohen has assaulted a lot of people, a lot of international activists and a lot of Palestinians. Uh, this is not new for her, but what was new was uh, for me, despite being there just on a visa, despite... Um, not having, you know, the ability, being at risk of being deported, I went and took her to court for a restraining order. And uh, so there was also within, it was right around the same time, um, I had been arrested once at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem for, uh, well, I was arrested for having a Palestinian flag in my suitcase. I had been coming from a protest in Tel Aviv, a, a very permitted legal protest, and so I had you know, some signs and some banners and a flag. And I was going to say um, a prayer for my grandmother at the wall because she had died that year. But I got arrested for having the flag, and they didn't let me go uh, pray for my grandmother that time. And so the next year when I came back, I did get to go pray for my grandmother and some settlers in Hebron. I assume they were in Hebron. saw it on social media and launched a campaign demanding the Minister of the Interior, Ilan Erdad, who is now the um, Israeli ambassador to both the United Nations and to the U.S., um, launched a campaign demanding that he actively deport me. Well, he didn't actively deport me because I, I think he couldn't quite locate me, and uh, because Haaretz came out of the woodwork and 972, incredible um, progressive, or, or at least liberal, I should say liberal, about Haaretz, progressive for 972, um, media sources, and, and told my story. So I didn't actively get deported, but when I came back uh, a year later, they had told me in the meantime that I was not allowed to enter without permission from Israel in advance. And so I, I got a visa in advance through the consulate in New York City. Um, but when I arrived at the airport, it did not go over so well. And... Uh, Elon Herdad had my visa revoked, and uh, I was interrogated for seven hours in the airport, screaming such things at me as, why are you friends with Palestinians? What's wrong with you? You're a Jew. How could you be friends with Palestinians? Um, and then after that seven hours of screaming at me and interrogating me, um, I was uh, deported back to the United States. And, and Gilan Erdad said that I was an extreme boycott um, activist and a danger to the state of Israel. So that was a very, very complicated experience that you went through and definitely doesn't seem fair the way you were treated. And that's definitely a trend, I feel like, with a lot of political activists. So in a, I guess, not necessarily a career choice, but a pathway that is definitely one that is not without controversy, what led you to political activism as your passion? Ah, well, that's an easy one. I, I have to credit my mother. I grew up in the anti-nuclear movement of the um, 
1980s and 1990s, and I, I watched people, um, often the first ones to get arrested were priests or nuns, but I watched people um, risk their freedom and, and um, sacrifice their freedom for uh, a more peaceful world. And my first act of civil disobedience was when I was 15 years old, and it was at the underground nuclear testing site um, outside of Las Vegas on uh, Shoshone native land, and uh, I helped block a highway there as we were trying to shut down the nuclear testing, hmm. nuclear weapons testing. Very, very cool, and definitely something that um, must be said about you before we get into some of the pressing issues in our country currently. I must commend you for your, not only adversity, but also your, I guess, bravery in stepping up, because no matter what party you're on, to step up and stand up for what you believe in is something that takes a lot of guts, and I commend you for that, Ariel. Well, thank you so, so much. I think necessary in these times if we if we look and we see what's happening and we see human rights being violated we see crimes being committed crimes against humanity crimes against the planet then we have a responsibility um to act and i'm glad to see this next generation um taking action i'm glad to see so many people engaged and voting right now now, Tatai, you kind of gave me the perfect lead into my next question here. So the election at the time of this posting will be eight days away, and it is easily probably the most consequential election in our country's history to this point. So I ask you simply, Ariel, with your vote in the 2020 election, are you selecting President Donald Trump to remain for another term or Vice President Joe Biden? listeners to make what uh what interpretations out of that they may but it's evident um where your lenience is so in talking about some of president trump's accomplishments in the middle east to this point he has um i don't know how you feel about this but from a objective opinion he's reached deals with bahrain um united arab emirates and sudan recently to work towards brokering peace with the israeli palestinian conflict this is obviously something that hits close to home with you with your ties to the middle east but what are your feelings towards his accomplishments in that sense or do you even view them as accomplishments what is your opinion on that ariel
sales to the UAE, including the F-35 fighter jet, notorious for flying over and dropping um, some bombs on Gaza at times. Um, and Israel, in response to that, says, well, if it's the UAE is going to get more weapons, we need to be even further armed, even more armed, $3.8 billion a year in U.S. military aid just won't be enough for us now, and we need more weapons. So they're asking for F-22 stealth jets. And then we can look at the UAE in terms of what might happen with these weapons. Well, the UAE has officially pulled out of the war in Yemen, this U.S.-supported Saudi-led war in Yemen, which has created the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet. But the UAE is still very much operating from behind the scenes. And um, according to reports by um, AP Media, is involved in torture in um, some of the facilities there. And so this is keeping the crisis in Yemen going. And the UAE um, has also been guilty of violating arms embargoes, United Nations arms embargoes. What's really happening with this deal between the UAE and Israel is further arming the Middle East, already a war-ravaged area, very much thanks to the United States, and uh, just keeping that going, keeping these endless wars going. And I think, what a farce that Trump says that he's an anti-war president while arming the Middle East, while sanctioning um, Iran, which is a form of warfare. And these deals are also about keeping this uh, war, uh, keeping the tensions between Iran and its enemies in the Middle East, uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and so on, heightened and going. Now, the one thing you said there, and I actually... um I'm going to try to remain as objective in terms of the interviewing process throughout this. But um, the one thing you said there that I was a little curious about is you mentioned the ties in all of this to Iran. So you were um, in listening to past interviews and whatnot, you were definitely, is it fair to say you were on board with the Iran nuclear deal reached under President Obama's administration? I think the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, was the greatest achievement of the Obama administration. So absolutely. So, and um, I very much hope that um, in 2021 we are able to get back into that deal. And I think that is, uh, you know, Trump and Biden are, are very similar when it comes to foreign policy. They are both um, avid supporters of Israel. Um, but one difference between them is, is that Biden has a much stronger commitment to get in to get back into the Iran nuclear deal, uh, whereas Donald Trump, I would say, has delusions about a deal with Iran. You know, he continues to say they're right on the brink of uh, making a deal with us, which um, they're clearly not. Now, my one comment here, I guess, is now your big issue with um, the deals reached, as you call them, the sham deals under Donald Trump to this point, is that they are providing weaponry for these countries. But now with the Iran nuclear deal under President Obama, in a sense, this was giving money which could have been used for terrorism. And Iran, especially right now, is... Definitely, as you just hit the nail on the head, one of the highest countries we have tensions with to this point in time, but with Israel, the UAE, and the other countries that they've reached agreements with, there isn't necessarily a tension that could lead to anything substantial at this point in time. So I guess my question is, for the protection of our country, in a sense, I guess leaving out the last question here, but for the protection of our country, especially with the heightened tensions with Iran, isn't to an extent, safe to say that it was a good move to pull out of the deal because it's, in a sense, helping us? I, I, I would be so confused about how it would be helping us to pull out of the deal. Because it's protecting in the us. the deal, Iran was not enriching uranium, and after we pulled out of the deal, they started enriching uranium further. Also, one of the things that happened when they pulled out of the deal, which is very common when sanctions are used as a form of warfare, 
is it empowered the hardliners in Iran. Iran, like many countries, has its own um, challenges and has a balance or, or, you know, a tension, an ongoing tension between moderates um, and reformers and hardliners, in this case, Islamic hardliners. And when that deal was broken by the United States, the moderates, uh, for example, Rouhani and Zarif, who brokered the Iran nuclear deal, well, the hardliners said to them, see, or said to the country, see, we knew all along you can't trust the United States, you can't try diplomacy with the United States, you can't make a deal with the United States. What we should be doing is getting closer and closer to a nuclear weapon. So what pulling out of that deal did is it brought Iran closer to a nuclear weapon. It enormously increased suffering in the country of Iran because of the brutal sanctions, which are preventing medicine for diabetes, cancer medications, equipment and medicines to treat the coronavirus pandemic, and much, much more. And it emboldened these hardliners, and it brought the world closer to nuclear catastrophe. So the best thing that we could do right now would be getting back into a deal. I myself am a big fan of diplomacy. Not always perfect. The deal wasn't perfect. But it was much better than an increasing arms race. It was a move towards diplomacy, a move towards peace, and it should have been continuously built on rather than torn up. And now we are back far, far in a worse position than we started with the Iranians having no reason at all to trust us. Well, I will say that was actually a very, very good and um, well thought out answer to that question. And you, for anybody listening, I thought that was a great explanation of... um, how the current situation is handled. With that said, though, I mean, Iran, Ariel, is no doubt seeking some sense of retaliation for the killing of Qasem Soleimani. So I guess in my sense here of leaving, I guess now leaving the deal out of it in this sense of the conversation, but with them openly, they're not over it. And how could you be over it? But... Exactly. And with everything that's just come out with the Federal Bureau of Intelligence reporting that Iran is interfering in the election, how does it sit with you to, I guess, not want to pull out of that deal if you're looking for the better protection of our country? Because now they are pretty obviously trying to start something, which it goes hand in hand with the killing of Qasem Soleimani, which Actually, I'm going to complete reword this then, and we can go back to that. But did you agree with the killing of Qasem Soleimani? Absolutely not. It was an extrajudicial execution and probably, I would say, the most dangerous move. You talk about U.S. safety, the most dangerous move that the Trump administration has made. Um, And it's only thanks to Iran having been actually the adults in the room at that time and having been able to say, oh, it's not in our interest to do a major retaliation back, but it put our troops in the Middle East in grave, grave danger. And in fact, of course, um, you know, with the, the retaliation that did take place at the time, there were uh, there was harm to our troops, but it could have been far, far worse. It put those of us at home in grave danger. Because of this retaliation, the Trump administration um, picked a, you know, really um, put us all at risk by doing that. They killed a man with enormous popularity in Iran, enormously popular amongst the Iranian people, and over 80% popularity rating. Um, And the reason for that was because he actually kept ISIS out of the country. Now, I'm, just to be clear, I am no fan of any military general ever, and um, so I'm not to, uh, I'm not commenting on, on Soleimani's career, but um, killing a a top general with that much popularity, what a dangerous, dangerous move that is. And um, I'm no fan of election interference. Uh, I think there's no excuse for it under any circumstances. But if we're going to have the conversation about election interference um, and around Iran, which is shameful if they are in fact doing that, but we cannot forget at any moment the election interference that the U.S. has been involved in. For example, the 1953 coup that uh, took out the 
Mossadegh in Iran and set this whole thing in motion. And that is, uh, Iran is far from the only country that the U.S. has carried out or supported a coup in. Uh, recently, uh, the U.S. tried to carry out a coup in Venezuela. Now, my question, and I'm tying it back to Soleimani, I guess, here, is with evidence in the past, and you said you didn't support him and you don't support any general, but with evidence in the past of him being a ruthless killer and no doubt popular in his country, which you can't deny based on their support of him and their mourning following his death, but with his past and a potential unknown credible threat that the Trump administration was potentially made aware of, could you see... Find an incredible threat. This is an extrajudicial execution. And you know what? We've got war criminals walking around the streets of the United States every day. There's war criminals running rampant in Israel, some of which can't travel to Europe because they'll be arrested on war crimes. None of that is an excuse for another country to come in and carry out an extrajudicial execution that puts the entire Middle East at risk of an all-out war, puts the American people at risk, and a So, in my saying this, I'm saying this in an objective sense. Do you think Soleimani's killing then was a feather, or an attempt to get a feather in the cap in the Trump administration? Absolutely. I think. Well, first and foremost, I think it was a, a completely foolish and dangerous move. Um, Trump is fond of doing um, things that get him a lot of, you know, publicity and and uh, you know, kind of these, these big gestures. And I think this was one of them. And really, the most dangerous thing he did during he has done during this, this four years of his presidency. So. My opinion on it, and I will add this in here, I guess, is that I thought Soleimani was a danger, but I didn't think it was necessarily the right time to do anything because, as you just hit the nail on the head, there was nothing that found that it was a credible threat. But with this, and this is tying back into my original point that I shied away from to talk about Soleimani, is it is heightened the tensions, whether you agree or not with the deal, whether you agree with any of the handling of the Trump administration in the Middle East, the tensions between Iran and the United States have never been higher. So if you were given the opportunity right now to plan the way to alleviate tensions with the country and with the Middle East as a whole, I guess, what would your way of going about it be? Well, I think we have to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. And I want to credit and commend the European uh, or, or all of the other countries, including European countries, that are members of the deal who have kept it hanging on by a thread despite U.S. attempts to to completely destroy the deal. So I think we absolutely have to get back into that deal. Now, the question is, how do we get back into that deal? Because we're the ones that broke the deal. We're the ones that imposed um, deadly sanctions on Iran. Like I said, um, Iranians are unable to get cancer medications uh, because of these sanctions, diabetes medications, medicines and equipment to treat coronavirus. So, you know, how do we get them, you know, how do we express that uh, we, have, we have seen the error of our ways and we want back into the deal? And the way to do that would be to begin negotiations again and to show in, in the necessariness of good faith by lifting the sanctions first. I mean, these sanctions should be lifted anyway. Sanctions are a brutal form of warfare that hurt not the elite but hurt the common people, the people who need diabetes medication. A friend of mine who has brain cancer in Iran, you know, that's who the sanctions hurt. So the immediate thing is to lift the sanctions and begin talks to express that we want to get back into a deal. Now, with all of this known with the heightened tensions and even throwing the interference with Russia in there, which is also a underlying theme of the United States election this year and really looking back to 2016. Absolutely. With all of this known, if you had to, I guess, place a number on the budget the United States should have for the military, what would that budget be? Because we just saw in the outline a 1% increase from last year's budget. What would your ideal budget be for the military? I, I'm going to defer to you. I don't 
over to the Poor People's Campaign, and I think they're calling for it to be cut by $350 million. So, and, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, I think it needs to be cut by at least a third, and we need to be funding health care, we need to be funding schools, our economy, infrastructure. We need to look and reassess what our priorities are, look and reassess at how we help the American people. And something that I, that I actually agree uh, with Trump a bit on is, you know, keep it here at home. Let's, um, let, let's make America first in that way. Let's make America first as in let's prioritize uh, health insurance and health care and education and housing for all of our people rather than causing harm across the world. I, Ariel, I never I thought... It's time that we start keeping our, um, keeping our resources and our priorities here at home. I never thought I would hear you in this interview say you agreed with Donald Trump, so that was definitely something that I was a little surprised to hear. <laughs> well, his language, not his actions, because he's actually increased the Pentagon budget. But um, in his language, he talks about uh, America first that way. But with his budget, I guess, it, in my eyes, as a, if I'm looking at it completely bipart- or nonpartisan, looking at it, I see a budget that right now makes me, gives me a sense of security, I guess, to know that, God forbid, something happens with Iran, the United States would be able to have the means to retaliate. And in a one-thirds cut of that budget, I guess you could say that there's still be ways to retaliate, but with the power that Iran could have, do you see that... So to justify my statements here, I wasn't saying that I felt that any of that was any less than having that sense of security in terms of a potential war. I'm saying in the sense that Iran did decide to attack the United States if this were to happen in a hypothetical scenario, the United States with a one-third cut to the budget wouldn't necessarily have all the means available that they would with the current budget. That was my statement with it. not disagreeing with you i'm just saying that in in the general sense i guess that was my justification for it whether that be right whether that be wrong but nonetheless i do want to touch on some of the other issues you are very um adamant about and that being social justice i mean in our country i cannot think of a time in my lifetime that i have seen more examples of social injustice than in this past summer and still going on with the murder of george floyd brianna taylor jacob blake's shooting with everything that has happened in our country how do you feel we get to a point where we have some sense of racism abolished in our country well i think we need to start by by cutting police budgets um 
where I grew up, and we're a small progressive town of 30,000. And uh, we sometimes like to think here that we're a bit immune because we're such a progressive city. But you know what? We're not. We've had police killing even here. And the other day, so um, there have been Black Lives Matter protests here since the killing of George Floyd. They haven't stopped here, and that's very much thanks to the hard work and commitments of teenagers. And I'm proud to say, including my own daughter, who's 17, who's out there every single week at these protests. And just last week, they were protesting um, mostly, almost entirely teenagers, youth, underage, minors. And uh, they were pepper sprayed directly into their eyes by the police, um, vile and, and violent. And the mayor of our city responded by saying that he was uh, going to, you know, trying to, going to try to shut down the Black Lives Matter protests. So we need to honor our protesters and we need to hold police accountable and cut their budgets. And we need to continue a reckoning here, a racial justice reckoning, a reckoning for justice um, here in the United States and, and really around the world. And um, we can start by cutting police budgets. Now, I definitely agree with you in feeling that our country is not in a place right now where I'm, I'm not proud of our country. And I don't know if you had a chance to li- or a chance to listen to my episode I did um, about Black Lives Matter and everything regarding the George Floyd killing and all the protests following that. But one of the things I said was whether or not you agree with the riots, whether or not you agree with the way things have been handled from kneeling for the national anthem as somebody who runs a somewhat sports-based podcast here, that's a prominent issue in all of sports is the national anthem and whether or not athletes would kneel for it. But whether or not you agree with any of it, I feel that the best way to alleviate any of this would be to vote for people who are willing to make change. And if there's anything you and I can agree on coming out of this interview is that we need change in our country and in terms of social justice. And that's definitely something that I feel can be done in the voters booth. And by protesting, that's raising awareness for everything going on and encouraging people to vote. So I definitely agree with you on that statement. With the police budgets, I do think that my policy or my personal belief on it and not even staying objective i guess here is that i don't think all cops are bad i know a lot of cops in my life who are genuinely good people and are not racist but i feel that there are cops that are racist and give cops a bad name whether or not you agree with defunding the police i do feel there needs to be stricter background checks especially with social media and everything that is known that people are saying openly on social media whether that be Derek chauvin supporting white supremacist groups or any other examples i think there needs to be stricter background checks into police and really guns as a whole but i do feel that our country needs to get better whether or not you agree with any of that the listener URL, i it's evident we need social justice change. So I commend you for and your daughter for taking out and protesting. And I definitely feel that that is something that needs to uh, change in our country. Absolutely. And let's be clear, this isn't about individual police because this isn't about individuals. This is about a system. This is about a racist system that was set up from the start to be racist, that was set up um, to enforce a racist system that came out of slavery. And... This is a system where police are not held accountable, where there is shielding of police um, accountability, and that's in the system. It's not about the individual. Now, of course, you're right. There are horrid, racist individual police who have committed murder, you know, so, so many of them. But really what this is about is a racist system that needs to be dismantled. And, and I absolutely agree with you. We do that at the... Um, polling place. We do that by voting and we also do it by pushing whatever administration we have in 2020. This work will not be finished after November 3rd. This work continues. It continues in Congress. It continues by pushing our members of Congress to have the principles, um, both foreign and domestic policies that we demand. It means pushing our Congress and our executive branch to cut the Pentagon budget and invest in human needs. Um, this is done through, you know, through voting, through uh, calling your your representatives, 
through taking to the streets, through writing op-eds. Um, there are so many ways to do this, and but right now, absolutely, it's about getting out um, to that ballot box. And to preface that, it's it's not to say that police should not be supported, because I 100% support the police. I think that every officer that is not racist and doesn't have malicious intent that is going out there to protect the civilians and their rights is commendable and a strength that I could never imagine doing. And anybody who has the guts to do that, I commend you for it. But at the same time, I think that one thing that Donald Trump and Joe Biden can both agree on is that, and really everybody in this country, is that the best thing that any administration can do is protect the American people, whether you're a police officer, whether you are... A person of color, whether you are a member, a member of the LGBT community. So I really feel that that is something that both administrations have done. In terms of economics, it's something that has been a theme of the Trump administration is the facts that he, on paper, has lower black unemployment rate. He has created new opportunities for jobs. So with his claims and then versus Joe Biden's plan for the, for the economy, which would you say, I guess, do you feel is the better outlook for our country from an economic sense? Well, from an economic sense, I think the first thing we need to do right now is deal with the coronavirus, which we have not been dealing with, which is what really has stalled our economy enormously. Uh, we also have to take back our country from the large corporations. And uh, neoliberalism in the Democratic Party has been very much responsible for the demise of the middle class, for funding Wall Street. But Donald Trump has very much done um, the same, despite some of his uh, rhetoric. Um, but right now, we need to deal with coronavirus so that we can have any chance to pull our economy back from where it is. And, uh, you know, it's shameful what we're seeing out of the White House right now uh, as, as coronavirus has become a hotspot there and our, as maskless rallies are being held with no concern, uh, just this past weekend, my family, we celebrated my grandmother's 100th birthday. Wow. 100 years old. She still lives in her home independently, uh, goes up and down to the basement to do her laundry every day. And I have to worry every day when she goes out to take a walk because of all of these people that are not wearing masks. Because Donald Trump has sent them a message that uh, for some reason we should let coronavirus rage like wildfire and it, it endangers my body. And uh, so that's personal to me. And I really think that's the immediate need for our economy. Well, first, happy birthday to your grandmother to be 100 years oh, old. Thank you so much. A lot of credit to her. Now, from my perspective on this as a young person and same age as your daughter, actually, I want to get back in school. I want to be enjoying my schooling and getting all the social aspects of that. So both presidents or and or both candidates for the presidency have varying views on how that should happen. As somebody with a daughter herself who is in school and as somebody myself is a student, how do you get kids back in school? Endowment. 
So they built an entire uh, testing lab on the campus and have invested uh, gobs and gobs of money. But obviously, um, other schools and cities in our communities cannot do that. So what if rather than funding the pockets of the weapons industry, funding Lockheed Martin and Boeing, and uh, rather than uh, selling those weapons to the UAE, uh, putting the entire Middle East at risk, rather than giving those weapons to Israel to uh, oppress Palestinians, what if we invested that money here on testing and uh, other and healthcare so that we could get this back under control and we could open our schools, grow our economy, um, work towards saving the planet, and so much more? Well, first, um, I completely agree that we need to not only save the planet, we need to get this under control because the fact that the National Basketball Association and colleges across our country have been able to figure out bubble-esque atmospheres to protect our country, and you look at uh, New Zealand is probably the best example I think anybody can think of of how they have managed the coronavirus. All of these countries, organizations, and universities have been able to get a grasp on this, and not even talking about the monetary aspect of any of this, but from a political aspect, it just seems like within our country, we need unity. Because whether you agree with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham and the way the Republican Party or the Democratic Party have handled agreeing to a stimulus or agreeing on coronavirus restrictions or any of it, it didn't need or to be this way. lack of a stimulus. <laughs> yeah, or the lack of a stimulus. Whether you agree with either party... This should not be this way. And the ones that are suffering are the elders, the 210,000 plus that have died of the coronavirus, your daughter, myself, your son, people whose lives are not the same and will never be the same because of a political issue made out of a health issue. And it's not fair. Absolutely. And it's neither it, be partisan nor political at all. And it's for the same reason why it's shameful that we have started now a cold war, and this is both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Sometimes they compete for who can uh, um, be more anti-China. But now is not the time, and China is not our enemy. This is about cooperation. This is about not pulling our funding from the World Health Organization. This is about working across the world, because um, if coronavirus is raging in one country, we are all unsafe. And so this is about coming together in unity as a world to defeat a, um, a health crisis, a pandemic. It should not be political. I completely agree with you, Ariel. And there's so much more I would like to get into you, with you. But one question I ask every guest that comes on this show, and I would love for you to come on again so we can talk about so much more because there is so much more we could talk about from climate, which is something I'm very avid about. Um, with all of that, though, Save that, tuck it away for another time, because one question I ask every guest, and I am very excited to hear your answer to this. Ariel, when it's all said and done, when your life as a whole is done, what do you want your legacy to be? Wow, wow, what a question. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, um, you know, for me, I, I was going to come back to some of what we talked about in the beginning. Uh, for me, we're a Jewish family, and it um, destroys my my heart and my soul and the lives of Palestinians every single day, the um, ongoing uh, military occupation of Palestine and the system of apartheid there. So for me, um, what I would like my legacy to be is uh, to have made at least a small contribution to um, equal rights and freedom and justice for Palestinians and um, Palestinians and Jews on that land being able to live together with full equality, uh, with equal voting rights, and um, in peace together. And, and if I can make a small contribution to that, and if I can pass that on to my children and later on to their own grandchildren, then I will have, a live, I will have lived a life that I will have been proud of. Ariel, it was an absolute blast having you on and getting to talk about all of this. And I uh, am very, very enthusiastic about everything you're doing. So could you tell all the people where they could find 
Code Pink, yourself, and anything in terms of social media and all the outlets you guys are on. Absolutely. So you can follow me on both uh, Twitter and Instagram at Ariel, that's A-R-I-E-L, like the um, settlement in the West Bank, Elise, E-L-Y-S-E, Gold, Ariel Elise Gold, that's on both Twitter and Instagram. And Code Pink's website is codepink.org, and you can follow us at Code Pink on Twitter um, and Instagram and Facebook, and please do so. Ladies and gentlemen, the national co-director of Code Pink, Ariel Gold. Thanks again, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me on. It was such a pleasure. Once again, I want to thank Ariel Gold for coming on. Most people, I guess, in my position would probably have scrapped this interview. Not because Ariel is anything less than phenomenal, but because Ariel called me out. I was wrong on some stuff, and Ariel called me out, and I am so, so happy she called me out when she did. A couple things I'd like to clarify. I 100% back the police. I also back Black Lives Matter. I believe everybody has an importance in this life, and we are all people, and we all deserve equal rights. And I said that with Ariel, but I wanted to clarify that a little more in case anybody got my comments misconstrued. With that said, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. And reminder, you can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, you know the drill. Instagram, at Ambitious Podcasts. Twitter, at Ambitious with DP. And YouTube, Ambitious with Dylan Price. You can find Code Pink at Code Pink dot com dot org um i messed that up but ariel tells you in the episode but just look up code pink they're really great and they are really working to make a change in our society so thanks again to ariel and uh come back next week for another new episode